scriptures with you tonight, please turn to the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's, uh, it's not wise for believers to be unaware of the oppression and suffering that the wickedness and corruption of the world bring down on people. It's not wise to turn a blind eye to the fact that many things in our world are unjust, uh, that for some people life is never pleasant or easy, and that people suffer and do so sometimes horribly. Biblical wisdom does not allow for ignorance about the actual state of the fallen world, beloved, nor does it teach us that the answer is to try to build heaven on, uh, heaven on earth as um, the way around this. Heaven will never be found under the sun that we have now. We, we had paradise once. Remember, that's driving Ecclesiastes. We had it once and we lost it. Biblical wisdom teaches us to navigate the world as it is, not to try to change it. Fallen, cursed, and difficult. In fact, if we forget that, we'll forget not just the necessity, but the true beauty really of the gospel. What makes the good news so good? In other words, by cursing this world and subjecting it to fallenness and futility, God has made sure it will be impossible to forget the fact that it's broken. Um, that's not pessimism. We're not talking about that. It's, it's biblical truth. There, now, there's a way to try to navigate this world in light of its difficulty, where the way around that is that you only live for yourself. A frantic Anxious existence where true satisfaction can only come if you gain or secure as much as you can for yourself and maybe for those you happen to care about. But we don't have to live frantically. We don't have to live in a constant state of anxiety. And here's what's so... The way these two thoughts go together in chapter 4 is very interesting that, that one leads him... To the other. But here's what's so interesting to ponder tonight as we consider chapter 4. Even in paradise, think about this. In the midst of everything that God called good, there is one thing he said was not good. And that was for man to be alone. Now when he says that, of course, he's obviously not saying it, it doesn't matter if a woman's alone. That, that's, he's talking about the human being. It's not good to be alone. And beloved, how much more true must that be now? than it was before the fall, than it was before the curse, now that everything has fallen apart. There's, there's too much brokenness, too much suffering, too much difficulty, and too much need in the world to care only about yourself and to get as much as you can. And there's too much brokenness, too much suffering, too much difficulty, and too much need in the world to try to navigate through all of it on our own. If we could only look to Christ and see the world as it really is, see the world as Jesus saw it, not only would we make life easier on ourselves, to be honest, we just might finally love our neighbors as ourselves too. Beloved, we cannot live only for ourselves. And, and again, don't just think of that in terms of the big things. Like living for yourself means uh, you buy the nicest car you want and all these things. Think of it in your, your everyday life, what motivates you, what causes you to say the things you say, do the things you do, care about the things you care about. Think of it down to the, the visceral level of your own existence. We can't live for ourselves. 
There, there, there's a way to live also, a different way, that results from knowing what is seen is temporary, while what is unseen is eternal. The wickedness and corruption under the sun remind us not to live only for ourselves at the expense of others, but to quietly enjoy the lot God has given us alongside others. So let me pray, and we'll get into the text. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for its clarity, for its power, for its truth, its authority, its inspiration. Father, we can depend on it. We can know it's true. So, Lord, help me preach it tonight. Help everyone hear and understand it. Help us believe together, Father. Help us help one another when we don't. But, Father, please fill me with your Holy Spirit for this moment. I ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first three verses of chapter 4. He writes, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So, I know it's been two weeks, but Solomon isn't ready to let go just yet of the reality of wickedness in the world. Remember, he picked that up in 3.16, talking about injustice. Now, he brings up oppression. Refers to it in three different ways. Oppressions, uh, oppressors, oppressed. When the Bible talks about oppression, it's speaking of um, cheating one's neighbor out of something, defrauding him, robbing him, or really seeking profit without regard to the nature, the needs, or rights of other people. All of that results in oppression. Solomon observes that this makes people suffer terribly. He can see that. People are crying, unending tears in the world. There's no one to comfort them. There's no one to protect them from the abuse of their oppressors. The fact that no one will help those who are suffering is so evil to the preacher in verse 2 that he says it would be better for these people if they were dead. I mean, just just think about that. He's saying at least dead people um, don't have to deal with this anymore. They don't have to put up with this oppression anymore. But then he adds in verse 3, look at that verse again, but, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So the unborn haven't found out yet that when people are consumed with themselves, they will ignore the tears and the plight of oppressed people. Again, since 316, Solomon has observed two types of wickedness. Wickedness in the court system, so that unrighteousness and injustice prevail, and the wickedness of people being oppressed and no one coming to help them. This is grievous to him. In verse 4, he begins to get to the root of why things are this way. Look at verse 4. I didn't read verses 2 and 3, did I? Let's pick it up in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Envy. Envy. That's where all this is coming from. That's the root, Solomon says, of our toil, our skill, our labor. We desire more. We desire what we don't have. So for the first time, Solomon identifies what is behind all this toil that we humans perform. And it's envy. We want, so we toil. The Bible is shockingly direct when it comes to why we do things. We like to blow it up and give all these qualifications. And It's like in James when he says, why do people in the church argue? 
because they want and can't have or don't have. That's it. Envy. Right? That's, that's, that's behind all conflict. Why do people murder? Because they want things they don't have. Why are people toiling and why is there so much oppression? Well, because of people's envy. Right? It's, it's just very, very direct, very clear. William P. Brown writes that envy inspires competition and thus twists the noble sense of vocation into an exercise in rivalry, into an upward and onward quest in the pursuit of dominance, leading even to violence. The envy of another, literally one's neighbor, flew in the face of the great command found in Leviticus and on the lips of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. We were never meant to find our identity from our work. But in our relationship with God and who God created us to be, God set up creation to run very simply. Right? Always remember this. Work was given to us to enjoy expanding paradise while we found a mate and had children, rested from it, all that toil or that work, I should say, before the curse, uh, resting from it in peace each week since it we didn't need it to tell us who we were. We didn't need it to tell us whether or not we mattered, right? I mean, again, you, you, you've listened especially to men sometimes. When men meet each other, one of the first things they ask each other is, what do you do? Right? That, that's a way that you kind of establish who you are and whether or not you're important and all those kinds of things. It's not always evil or malicious or something. It's just that's how we generally define ourselves. Now we find our identity from the sweat of our brow um, and having more and being better or being more educated or more skilled or more put together or more happy than others. Think about the way people make fun of different jobs. You, you, we make fun of McDonald's. We make fun of Walmart and all these things because, if, you know, that doesn't really in our minds contribute like being a doctor does or something. And, of course, those are two very different things. But how is that any uh, sign of, of the value of a person, right? It's just very strange that we've become like that. It wasn't meant to be that way, right? That there was, there was, there was one job in the beginning, one, tend the garden. Everybody was going to have the same thing to do, right? Now it's not like that. It's paradise lost. Everything's been corrupted by our envious natures, even the good gift of work from God. Rather than a means of serving, providing for others, it's become a means of taking from others, trying to outdo one another. The way that you get more, right? The way that you become secure, um, even if it means hedging our own selves in, we still can't um, do that to the detriment of the oppressed, right? So in other words, we, we can't even pursue our own gain if it means oppression, is what Solomon is trying to teach us here. The Bible won't let us escape. It won't qualify this here. It doesn't say, now, now some people work for this. No, we work from envy now. Right? And of course, for some, envy gets a lot worse than others, but really what's going on is that we want and don't have. That's why we covet. That's why we're envious. It says our ruthless competition with each other to gain more stuff isn't admirable. Now that's important because it can be seen as a trait, as, as a, as a positive character trait. Somebody's very driven, um, and we, we don't want to put down commitment or effort. That's not what the Bible's doing. It's just saying maybe we need redeemed from everything that we are. Right? Maybe there's envy lying in the bottom of our hearts, making us do many of the things we do. Um, it's, it's not admirable. The, the Bible calls it vanity. 
and a striving after wind in verse 4. It's pointless. Pointless. Again, the Bible dashes these notions of importance that we have. right? These notions of value. He would call being driven at the expense of everything else in your life to succeed and get and achieve vanity. Pointless. A striving after wind. Right? That's not going to draw a crowd in to listen. It's, it's almost offensive. <clears throat> we don't need to make sure that we get ours in a world that's passing away. We just don't. Especially not when getting it means, in this context, overlooking those who are in need. Notice that's the flow of thought here. He goes right from oppression and people not having someone to help them to the envy of our toil. We're, we're fixed on what we want, what we're driving for. In the meantime, people are crying and they're suffering and we're looking right past it. Right? Envy is bigger than sentiment in the heart of human beings. It sounds so un-American, doesn't it? It sounds so un-American to not go for the gusto, achieve you know, pursue the American dream, get it. And look, I, I don't want you to think, I don't think the Bible wants us to think that things like owning a home or vehicles are, are sinful. I, I don't believe they are. Anything can be sinful. I don't think categorically those things are sinful. Uh, I don't think it's a sin to have a savings or to, or to give good things to your children or want good things for them or to enjoy the fruit of your labor. After all, that's precisely what Solomon argues for us to do. He often says there's nothing better for us to do than that. But none of these things permit us to forget the oppressed or to forget the injustice and the wickedness and evil in the world. Actual oppression, not media oppression. Real oppression. People are genuinely suffering. In other words, we have to learn to look away from finding meaning in our work if we're not going to overlook the oppressed. So how do we respond to a wicked and competitive world as God's people? Well, he gives us some responses, some possible ways to react to the fact that it's cutthroat, right? In verse 5, one response is to quit and become lazy. Folded hands. I just won't do anything then, right? That's what he's saying, but the Bible calls that foolish. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. If our hands are folded, they can't be used for work, Solomon says. Work is not what is evil. Working from envy is what is evil. Many humans just opt out of working altogether and choose to live off other people. right? And, and what's interesting is that's as oppressive to a group of people as exploiting the poor would be. If, if that's, that's oppressive of people to withdraw and say, you know what, I'm not going to work. You're going to provide for me. Well, now you're oppressing me, right? So it's, it's, and we see this. Look, we see this. If you reward people for not working, guess what? They're not going to work. Why would I get up and go to work if you're going to pay me more than I make going to work? It's, it's, it's simple. Right? So that, that's, that's one response. Let's just not work. Let's just be lazy. Let's just get from other people. God warns such people again and again. Twice you read these verses in Proverbs. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding the hands to rest. You see that? And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed warrior. Proverbs 6, 10, and 11. And again, Proverbs 24, 33, and 34. You'll not only become poor, ironically, you'll just become more envious. Right? Rich people are not the only people that love money. Right? That, that, that's not the way it works. We always assume, or I guess we 
can assume that the evidence that you love money is that you're rich. No, 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 no. You can love money and not have it. Money can be the driving goal of your life, the love of money, and you can be very poor. Right? And, and if you would opt out of working to, to get rich or to benefit, you love money. Right? You believe that money will meet your needs. It's not, again, it's such people, what is the result of that? Such people that have that mindset end up eating themselves. Solomon is saying in this verse, they produce nothing that they can actually eat. So they'll eat up what they do have and then they'll die. So dropping out of work, withdrawing from the workforce altogether, that's not the way, right? That's not an option. The second option is the opposite of that and it's to grab everything you can. And if that's what everyone else is doing, you'll have to take care of yourself. You'll have to look out for yourself. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. I've never seen a kid trick or treat with one hand. I've never seen a kid walk up to you and go, trick or treat. What do they do? Trick or treat. Right? Or if they ask, can I have a cookie? Right? Can I have, can I have a piece of that? Right? They want everything in your bag. They want everything on the shelf. Two cupped hands hold a lot more than one open hand. Right? Who wouldn't rather have more, um, or who wouldn't rather have two handfuls instead of one? Bigger is better, of course. More money is better than less money. A Benz is better than a Fiesta. A mansion is better than a shack. A bigger business is better than a small one. Two handfuls are better than one. The problem is that two handfuls require more toil. Toil without rest, in fact. Toil filled with striving. Two hands full means work, 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 work. But in the end, it's still just chasing the wind. You get two handfuls in the end of nothing. You can hold on to nothing. We always think we'd be happier if we got what we want. And deep down inside, often we begrudge God for not providing it when maybe all God is doing in withholding is making provision for our peace instead of our anxiety. Right. The third option is one handful with contentment. One handful is smaller than two, absolutely. But biblical wisdom says if it comes with quiet, it's worth more than gold. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17, 1. It's just not worth the toil. Right? That's, that's an amazing thing the Bible is teaching us. Yes, you can get more. Right? You, you can always get more. He's just trying to tell you the more you have, the more toil to get it, to keep it, to hold on to it. Then comes the anxiety of not wanting to lose it. And the Bible's saying, why? Right? That's in Ecclesiastes. This teaching is in Ecclesiastes. But you want to talk about chasing the wind. That's chasing the wind. Right? There, there, there's no end to this. And beloved, let people whose hope is in this life only go ahead and think that you're a fool for not joining the rat race. Just, that's okay. You, we don't have to meet the expectations of the world. Right? They hope in different things than we do. Sometimes whether or not it's good to be the fool... Depends on who's calling you the fool. Right? I don't want God to think me a fool. I don't want biblical wisdom to think me a fool. Right? Let, if the world thinks me a fool, well, 
that's that's fine. I, I, well, the solution is not only what he said back in 322, right, to enjoy your work. We have to understand that enjoying our work is the result of not trusting in it to satisfy the emptiness of our souls. Not trusting our work to give us the meaning that we can't find. God made work meaningless under the sun so that we would come to the end of our striving and look to Him for rest. Sabbath is salvation from the fall. That's what rest is. In light of all the wickedness and oppression and suffering in this world, we should be satisfied with one handful and enjoy our work in peace, in quietness. We don't need to join the circus. We don't depend on earthly gain. Jesus warns very Clearly against the desire for two handfuls. Take care, he says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. There's different kinds of greed. Be on guard against all of it. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke twelve fifteen, the end of the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. Poor Lazarus was not the fool. He was not the fool the rich man was. Why was he foolish? Because he stored up treasure for himself. You see that? Looking at the self and was not rich towards God. Apparently being rich towards God is storing up for others, not for oneself. That's a very interesting thing. How is that, how does that show richness toward God? Well, because it, 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 none of it is, is hedged in for the self. So there's something God-like. You don't understand what I mean? Christ-like about being rich towards others rather than, or towards God, rather than being rich for oneself. It's like those are the two options. Right? He, no, no, he doesn't say being rich towards others or being rich towards oneself. He says being rich toward God. Those are the two poles. Rich toward God, rich toward yourself. Richness toward God causes love and service of others. Being rich towards the self hinders it. I'm, I'm, I'm not your Holy Spirit. I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to walk away thinking that or that I'm evaluating your life and what you have. I most certainly am not. Um, it's not for me to determine what's too much. Right? If, you, if we get into that, it never stops. It never stops. And, and there are books like that. You know, there, there, there are. It just If you just begin to speculate on, well, is that too much? I heard a conversation one time on a panel between a guy... Um, David Platt that writes books like Radical and, you know, you're, you're never radical enough. You just gotta lose more. And he was talking about how horrible it is that here we have air conditioning. And another guy on the panel said, David, do you have air conditioning? He said, well, yeah. I was, well, well, then what are you talking about? Like, like, do you see what I'm saying? If, if we just start saying you can't have that kind of car, uh, you gotta have this kind of car. It, it's just, it's, that's not the goal. That, how does that not become self-centered? Your whole life becomes about making sure, you know, you, you don't have it. Maybe don't have an extra piece of cake. Maybe uh, don't have a nicer car. Don't get a nicer house. Don't go on vacation. It just it never stops. And I don't think that's biblical life. I, I, I just I don't think that I, I think the point is always the heart and what's going on in the inside. And only the spirit can work there. I, again, we don't know each other's hearts, which, by the way, we could give each other the benefit of the doubt sometimes, couldn't we? If, 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 if I don't know exactly why you did or said what you said or did, maybe I could hold back on judgment a little bit. You know, it's just, but again, all that comes from thinking only for ourselves. 
only of ourselves. So the point here is not we set up some code that we live by. When I worked at a Mennonite restaurant in, in uh, like 95 to 97, uh, I, I loved it. It's some of the best food I've ever had in my life. Um, but but it was the Mennonites that ran it. They would they gave us like their little manuals of their doctrine and everything. That sect of Mennonites because they're all different. You couldn't you could only have a blue, a white, or a, or a gray car. Those are the three colors because other colors are worldly, right? So just you you realize that like that's why Jesus died. You know, I don't want you having red cars, gang. I mean, it's, 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 it's just, that drives us into ourselves. It just drives us into ourselves. And, and what, what do people like that do? Eventually, what do you do? You pull away from the world completely, don't you? You cut off all contact with the world. Because you can't be around it, it's dirty. Jesus isn't calling us out of the world physically. Paul, Paul's very clear about this. Jesus is very clear about this. When he tells them to, purge the evil person from among them. He says, I'm talking about the church. You don't purge the evil people out of the world. I'm talking about my house, my people, right? But the, the simply no. I mean, in other words, we, the Bible is not setting us up for legalism here, right? I mean, which is always where those things go. And it would be better to die than be a Pharisee, right? That, that's not the path... We want to go simply know that life and rest are only found in Jesus and then live towards him and let him have his way with you. Right. I, I, I'm not in a position to do that. I'm not in a position to walk around and tell you whether or not every step you take is godly. That's not up to me. Right. It's, it's not my you don't want that. We don't want that. The, the be at peace, rest, enjoy your work, enjoy what it gives you. Enjoy your lot. No more striving. No more striving. The reality of suffering and oppression and wickedness that result from envy and getting more at all costs is precisely what leads Solomon into this next observation. I think this is very powerful. Pick it up in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. He's not changing topics. Yet there is no end to all his toil. That's what we're talking about. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So that he asks that all the time. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For, here's what he means. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here's one specific case of toiling that is vanity and a striving after the wind. That of the solitary individual who is so driven that he's all alone in his pursuits. According to verse 8, he's cut off all relationships so that he can focus exclusively on the single goal of his life. Gain and riches for himself. He's consumed with himself, therefore he's consumed with his work. That's how we know that. He wanted more than one handful. He wanted two handfuls at least, right? And he proves that two handfuls come with strife and toil, but envy is insatiable. The more he gets, the more he wants, the more he realizes it will never be enough, so he has to keep toiling. There's no end to it in verse 8. It isn't even pleasurable anymore. His life has become his work. He can't even enjoy what he has since all it does is remind him of what he doesn't. 
Beloved, the text is showing us what it's like for the person who achieves his desires in his toil, who gets rid of everything else in his life to gain all that he wants. This is the perfect example of the rugged individualist, and he's miserable. And there are too many real-life examples of this to prove his point or to question his point. Think of all the relationships he's ruined and lost. Think of all the suffering he's overlooked. The needs he could have met, the problems he ignored out of pure envy. So it doesn't matter if we actually achieve it. If, if you say, well, I toiled and I got what I wanted, that's fine. It's also vanity and an unhappy business. An unhappy business. He has no one to share it with, no one to give it to. It benefits no one. So here's one reason it's all vanity and an unhappy business. It's not good to be alone. You see, you see the movement there? That he's isolated everybody. And Solomon goes right into the fact that it's, it's not, why, why do you want to be alone? That's where envy will get you. That's where toiling for self will get you. You'll be alone. And it's not good in a world where there's oppression to be alone. Right? That's his flow of thought here, I think. The solitary person will perish. Two people are better than one. Partners are better for one reason as would have been especially relevant in Solomon's Middle Eastern context where you literally walked everywhere. If one of you falls, there's someone to help you up. right? One can help the other survive. If it's cold, it's better to have someone to cuddle up beside than it is to be alone. Of course, no man in his right mind wants to cuddle up with another man, but he's not talking about something... Uh, He's not talking about intimacy here. Remember, when you traveled, and in this culture at night, it's extremely cold. And they didn't usually carry sleeping bags or blankets even, really. All you really had to keep warm when it was horribly cold was each other, right? Body heat. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about intimacy here. If you're alone, you're going to freeze. And, and another danger of that culture is in the traveling and traveling alone is being attacked while you're traveling, Right? One man can be easily overtaken. Two is a completely different story. The dynamics of fighting, of defending yourself, change exponentially when, it's, when, when there's a second person, whether it's the one attacking you or you're defending yourself. It's a whole different ballgame. A threefold cord is a rope made up of three strands twisted together. It's a kind of rope, right? A single cord can be very easily broken. The point is not mystical here. It, and again, it's not that there's like a, a threefold cord means a third party is mystically present. That's not really what he's saying. And again, the, the context here is not marriage. It's not intimacy. It's not love. This means the bond created by two people is better for everything than if one is alone. We can't survive a fall. These are his examples. You can't survive a fall. You can't keep warm on a cold night. And you can't withstand robbers all alone. So his point in context is the toil that comes from envy and, and the good that we're willing to sacrifice in order to gain. We're not meant to be alone. And, and envy isolates. The desire for gain isolates. He's, he's not saying if you're single, you're, you're in a bad spot. That, that Again, I want to stress to you, that's not his point. His point is whether or not you live for yourself, the exclusion of other people. Right? That, that's, that's what he's after here. Desire for gain isolates a person. It doesn't just hurt others, it leaves you all alone. And it's not good to be alone. Toiling by yourself, for yourself, it's futile. And beloved, there's a rugged individualism that pervades American culture that many of us have adopted as admirable. 
that the Bible would call pure foolish, pure, poor, poor, did I say poor foolishness? That's good. Pure foolishness, right? It's, it's, it's not just detrimental to the world when we care only about ourselves. It's extremely detrimental to the church. For Christians to be like this when we're called members of one body, of one household, and one family. Right? We, we become willing to pursue our own preferences and desires no matter how underhandedly we have to act to get them. That pervades church culture. It doesn't matter who we hurt. It doesn't matter who we overlook. As long as we get our way. As long as we get what we want. And you can hear it. You can hear it. Right? I, I, I love our church. You hear me say that all the time. And I mean it when I say it. But don't think that's not here. Right? Of, of course it is. There are people here that want their own way. And they'll do whatever they have to do to get it. They'll play whatever games they have to play to get it. That's how it works. And it's dangerous. It's deadly. People will keep other people from serving because they want to serve. Right? They'll hold on to their place. Not give it up to others. Um, there's, 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 there's no limit. People will gossip and complain and murmur rather than talk that that way what they want finds its way back to the person that needs to hear it. So they'll just play games and create little strategies and whisper in the dark. And if we, if we move this way, if we do this, then maybe we can get this. And how does that reflect Christ? How does that reflect Christ? People strategize, they'll make phone calls, they will toil, 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 toil to get their way. It's all envy. All that is envy. Right? It's all toil that both hurts others and isolates you. So no wonder in an environment like that, so many will be upset and unhappy all the time, constantly annoyed, nothing is ever good enough. They're never satisfied, never satiated. We, we, we like to... Uh, make fun of the woke, and we should because that's a horrible ideology, but how it's, it's never good enough. You can never be sorry enough. You, you know, uh, you can never be, uh, feel badly enough about racism and oppression and all these things. And so, but beloved, ev- everybody's like that when it comes to what they want for themselves, right? You, you, you can, you can never do enough for people. You know, you, you, you can never be sorry enough, bend over backwards enough. How, how, that seeps into the church, right? It just, it just, it's, it's, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. It's all envy. We aren't getting what we want. We aren't getting what we're toiling for. So we just have to work harder, don't we? We have to toil more to secure what we want. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. Not even Jesus decided to go it alone at the expense of others, beloved. He didn't have that view of himself. How can we? We're not made to be isolated. It hurts us and it hurts others. And that's what envy will do. It's going to isolate you eventually so that it's you against everybody else. And it may be your fault that you got there. Right? Because you had to have what you wanted and you didn't care what it took to get there or to get it. Grace gives us better things. It gives us a better way. It calls us into a life where we strategize to give to others, to benefit others, to serve others, not to take from others. Envy cuts against the grain of everything Christ has called his people to be. That calls for a life of simplicity, doesn't it? Where the personal demands are small. 
You see the connection he's making here? It, it calls for a life of simplicity where I don't have a list of personal demands. That's how people are served when envy is killed. So one last tragic figure closes this section down. This is very interesting. Pick it up in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Again, you talk, you're talking about isolation. For he went from prison to the throne, this young person, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So he achieved. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, the elderly, of course, as it should be in cultures, were normally considered wise, wiser than the young anyway, to say the least, right? And certainly of all people, you'd want the king to be wise. But Solomon had firsthand knowledge of a foolish king. He's as isolated as the rich man in the story. Why? Well, because he can't take advice, right? He can't take advice. This driven, isolated worker that we read about earlier had cast off all his companions, even family. The king has apparently gotten rid of all his advisors. He'll go it alone too. That's what he's talking about here. It's the fool that can't listen to advice. It's the fool that can't listen to advice. The argument we have all the time, right? Elderly people say that younger people are just arrogant. Younger people say old people are just stubborn. Look, they're both right. Okay, it's, yes, young people are arrogant. Okay, have you ever tried to tell an older person anything? You ever try to convince an older person that something they think is incorrect? Good luck with that. Okay, it's it's just, look, it's, I'm, my day's coming, right? I'm I'm already there. I mean, if I, everybody's the same. The, the, The difference is, Wisdom should come with age, right? And, and, and normally it does. But part of wisdom is humility, right? And, and how the king has, this king isolated himself was pride, envy, right? I'm not going to take advice. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. He's talking about the same thing for the whole chapter. Well, this poor but wise youth who started in prison but ended up on the throne What did he do? Chose to be one with the people he led rather than isolating himself. He chose the wise path so that there was no end of all the people whom he led. Now, I wonder if Solomon had in mind here, like Joseph, maybe, maybe, right? A wise ruler like Joseph who was in prison in Egypt but came to rule so wisely, benefited the entire known world in a sense at that time. But just before, notice what he does here. Just before we think there might be gain for us under the sun, and that if you choose this way, it always goes well, look at verse 16. Look at the middle of verse 16. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also, what that poor but wise young man did, surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Sidney Gradonis says that even a life that is guided by wisdom even a life that reaches the pinnacle of human achievement, even a life that is exalted by the adoration of millions, is futile, useless in the end. Just as a king arose in Egypt that did not know Joseph, 
even good and wise kings are forgotten. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Lest somebody would come to the end of this text and say, well, I'm going to push to achieve for good reasons. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to achieve in an honorable way. You can. It's still vanity. It's still striving after wind. There's nothing you gain here. It doesn't mean what you gain is always sinful. The point is something larger than that. All that you gain here is nothing, is what the Bible is trying to tell us. Don't look to it to draw anything from it other than the enjoyment of the moment. It's just, it's just biblical wisdom. If there's even a limit to where wisdom can get you in such a world, then why in the world would we ever be so self-centered to try and go it alone? I think that's the point of this passage. At least a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You can break a threefold cord if you try hard enough, but not as quickly as you can one. You hear what Solomon is teaching us here. We live in a fallen and futile world that is filled with wickedness and injustice where even the best of things and people are soon going to be forgotten. It makes no sense to invest everything here. I don't know if it's, it's really the, but have you ever noticed a couple, a couple months ago, my wife and I got to go see, um, oh, what was the name of that movie? Where's, where's my wife? She leave? She gone? Okay. All right. All right. Girls, do you remember the name of the John Wayne movie we saw? No? Okay. What is it where he goes back to Ireland and marries the lady? The Quiet Man. Thank you. Whoever that was. Thank you so much. There's a, such a calmness to movies like that. And I forgot what the title was. Now I forgot what my point was. <laughs> oh, man. That stinks. Never mind. Never mind about the quiet, man. I have no idea what I was after there. I'm sorry. Um, oh, that's embarrassing. No idea. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I remember. I remember. Talk. My whole family's leaving. Where's everybody going? But we're... we're where even the best of things and people are soon forgotten. That that world, like, there's something about older movies that are so relaxing and, and there, there was a different feel to them and, and things seem to be so good then. That's gone. It's gone. It doesn't feel like that anymore when you watch a movie. It's, it's so stressful and it reminds you of the world. It doesn't help you escape from it. Right? That's art now. Art now is look at how horrible everything is. Art's no longer an escape. We're getting our meaning from it. Right, we're getting our meaning from music and movies and artists and that's where we find our meaning. It's, it's even the best of things and people are soon forgotten. None of these things are worth trusting. The Bible's pulling us away from trusting anything or anyone in the world, whether it's good or bad. Pull away from it. Pull away from it. It makes no sense to invest everything here. The reality of how quickly this life passes when seen in the light of biblical reality ought to cause us to care for others more than we care for ourselves. It ought to cause us to repent of our pride, realize the world is too harsh for rugged individualism. It doesn't help anything. True satisfaction, true joy, true meaning won't come from being a workaholic and it won't come from being a sluggard. There's fulfillment in accepting our God-given existence, intending our lot alongside others. It's better to have a handful of quietness and two hands full of things and full of toil. That's biblical truth. That's biblical wisdom. There's no way to get around that. It is better to have one handful with quietness than to have two 
with strife and toil, period. Period. In the end, no matter what that gains for us, that toiling, no matter what it gains for us, it's vanity and a striving after win. Beloved, when our Lord Jesus came to the earth, how did he live? How did the perfect human being live? This is precisely the life he lived. What Solomon is pushing us towards is the life that the wisdom of God incarnate, the true wise man, the true sage, the second Adam of a new creation lived in order to become our perfect forgiveness and our perfect righteousness. Because here's the reality. No matter what Solomon is saying to us, we cannot slow down. We can't do it. Beloved, we, we cannot believe this is the way to live. Our fallenness twists the brokenness of the world into proof in our minds that you have to live for yourself. That you have to look out for number one. You have to hedge your own bets. But listen to Paul in closing here. Describe our Lord Jesus as the basis for the way that we live, particularly towards one another in the church. Let me read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 to you. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All these different people. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a, there's a reason I usually read this text before business meetings. Because that's where it comes out. Right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So when Paul wants a frame of reference for what he's talking about, where does he go? He goes right to Christ which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, not to be used to get over on other people, but emptied himself, not of his divinity, that's heresy, emptied himself of that right he could have taken, which, which is it's huge. Jesus forewent his rights. We... We build a whole country on not foregoing your rights. Right? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, 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 the death of Jesus in Philippians 2 is seen as the culmination of a life lived for others. Right? Even in death, Jesus was serving others. If the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, then we can't possibly think our lot in life is wrapped up in getting all we can, only caring about ourselves, always defaulting to ourselves, ignoring the suffering of others, or toiling and striving to gain what can only ever be lost. The wickedness and corruption under the sun remind us not to live only for ourselves at the expense of others, 
but to quietly enjoy the lot God has given us alongside others. Yes, if you join a church, it may slow you down and stunt your growth. Yeah, you got to link arms with weak people. Guess what? They've got to link arms with you. And we also just might help pull each other up. Jesus lived the lot that God had given him. That's all he did. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Beloved, don't miss the moment God has given you. Don't miss the place you're in. Don't miss the lot you have. Don't live always believing the grass is greener with something else. If you ever want to sit down and talk about this, if you ever want to sit down and hear about how thinking that the grass is always greener will kill you and suck the life out of you, let's sit down and have coffee. I did that all my life. It made me miserable. It never works. Ever. Ever. It all comes from envy. It's always better somewhere else. Beloved, we discount the place God has us now. We're questioning His wisdom when we think like this. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to forgive us of our toiling and striving, to forgive us of our self-centeredness, to forgive us of this callousness. All the provision has been made for you to rest and enjoy the place where you are. With the salvation that grants us freedom from underneath the sun, fully provided, fully paid for. Glorify God in this life, absolutely. The life that you have. Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. Don't, don't think now you gotta go home and get rid of all your stuff. That's not the point. He's just telling you to let go of it. That's all. That's all. Look to Christ. Love and serve others. Look to Christ again. He's with us. He's all we need. He's all we need.